Hi, friends. How are we doing today? I'm very glad you're here. Today we begin a new series studying the seven churches of Revelation. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but I will tell you it gets interesting when pastors ask parishioners to turn to the book of Revelation. There have been two typical responses to this book in the Western world. Some obsess over its content, looking for all the secrets to the end of the world. Others overcorrect by abandoning its study altogether. Both responses are inadequate. Now, this series is not going to be a study of the book of Revelation in its entirety. Perhaps one day we'll tackle that magnificent, mystifying book of the New Testament. That day will have to wait. I would, however, like to point you to a resource. Frankly, most of the popular literature available on the book of Revelation brings more confusion than clarity. So I want to offer you a safe, smart book if you'd like to study the book of Revelation. I'll probably recommend a few books throughout the series, but I'll start with this one. It's Gordon Fee's commentary on the book uh, in the New Covenant Community or Commentary series. Now, I own dozen, a dozen solid academic commentaries on Revelation. This one stands out because it strikes a nice balance between exegesis and application or, or accessibility. Uh, Fee's one of the world's foremost New Testament scholars. You're in good hands with one of Dr. Fee's books as your guide. The focus of our study in this series will be on the seven letters found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now, In a few moments, we will pray together and dive into chapter 2. But before we do, I want to take a little time to give you the background of the seven letters. And to begin, I'd like to read the introduction of the letters found in Revelation chapter 1. I'll read a rather lengthy passage for this morning, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I saw, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands 
are the seven churches. The writer who records this revelation of Jesus calls himself John. There's some debate as to exactly who this John is. The fact of the matter is our identification of the author doesn't dramatically alter how we interpret the book. But for the purpose of expediency, we'll forego the debate and assume the tradition that this book was written by the Apostle John, the brother of James, the friend of Peter, the writer of the Gospel of John, and the other three epistles that go by that name as well. The author is instructed to send the contents of this revelation to seven churches located throughout the Roman province of Asia. The churches are located in the western region of present-day Turkey, as you'll note from this map. The churches are listed in the text in the same order you'd find if a messenger visited them one by one, journeying from the port at Ephesus, traveling clockwise, ending up in Laodicea. These churches face three challenges in common. And the first is persecution. Most New Testament scholars date Revelation uh, to the mid-90s AD. This places the writing of this work during the reign of the emperor Domitian, whose systematic persecution of the Christian church exceeded that of the emperor Nero. Domitian demanded worship from his citizens, but followers of Jesus refused to call him Lord. The result was accusations, imprisonment, and execution. The church faced persecution. Additionally, false teachers were making the rounds through the region, deceiving church people and church leaders alike with their false teaching. And on top of all of this, immorality began to seep into the churches, leading people down the path of promiscuity. These are the three three challenges faced by the churches. Now, it's not by accident that Jesus writes to seven churches. To be sure, there are more churches in the region. But throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven symbolizes completeness or fullness. The seven churches of Revelation represent the church universal. What we will study in this series offers practical, powerful truth for all churches in all places for all time. And there are a couple questions we will ask ourselves through this series. First, which letter is written to me? Maybe there's something Jesus needs to tell you about your faith. Second, which letter's written to us? Is there something God wants us to learn as a community? Before we study the letter, I'd like to pause and pray. Immediately after the prayer, I'll illustrate the point of our passage today by sharing a video. It's a clip of a gentle lullaby I used to sing to my girls at bedtime when they were younger. Before we get to that, let's pray together. Lord, we're excited about a new study and a new book. I can't wait to see what you're going to do and what we are going to learn. So I pray, may this series forever change the way we read these verses. May it forever change the way we live. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. So in the letters to the churches of Revelation, Jesus wants us to know a life without love is just noise. Before we come to our first letter, I want to draw your attention to the form of these seven letters. They follow a general pattern. Each letter begins by identifying the recipient, which is mysteriously 
always an angel associated with each city. Next comes the author. Jesus uses a different description for himself for each church, but some aspect of that description is lifted from Revelation chapter 1, the passage we just read a few moments ago. The pattern continues with praise and then reprimand, followed by a word of warning and a promise. Not all aspects of the form appear in every letter. Two churches receive no reprimand. One church receives no praise. We'll keep an our eye on that general pattern as we work through each letter over the next several weeks. The first letter is written to the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is the largest city among the seven. In fact, it's the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. As a major port city and intersection of three trade routes, Ephesus was perhaps the most important metropolis in the region. It was a center of commerce, a center of politics, a center for religion. It was perhaps best known for its temple to Artemis or Diana, the goddess of fertility. The temple in Ephesus was so magnificent, it became renowned as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The city was important to the Christian movement as well. The church at Ephesus was started by the Apostle Paul along with a couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Later, Paul's protege, Timothy, pastored the church. Timothy resided in Ephesus when Paul wrote to him a letter we know as 1 Timothy. Toward the end of his life, church tradition tells us the Apostle John became the leader at Ephesus. This was an important city and an important church with an important history. Back at verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, why would the letter be written to an angel? The Greek word translated angel is angelos. Technically, it means messenger or envoy. The question is, what does it mean here? Some say it refers to a literal angel. Whether that means each church is assigned an angel or not, we can't say for sure. Some say it refers to uh, uh, the bishop or the overseer of the church community. Others say it refers to the prevailing spirit or the attitude of the church. The fact of the matter is we can't say with certainty. We do know that that ultimately the recipients of the letter were the individuals in each church. Jesus continues, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus describing himself Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 told us the seven lampstands were the seven churches. In this letter, Jesus identifies himself as saying he walks among the seven lampstands, emphasizing that he's up close and personal. He's with us, he's watching us, he's journeying with us, which is great, unless you have something to hide. In chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deep. Your hard work and perseverance, each letter to each church begins with these words, I know. Here Jesus says, I know your deeds. Then he elaborates to pointing out their hard work, their perseverance. You see, Ephesus is a church that serves. Jesus knows they've invested their time, their talents, and their resources in his kingdom. He has seen every shared meal, every shared paycheck. He was there walking among them when they visited the sick, when they bandaged their wounds. He was there when they taught and trained and prayed for one another. The word translated hard work emphasizes one's toil and distress while working. The people in that church did a lot of heavy lifting for a lot of needy people. They gave and gave and gave, and Jesus was right there to see it all. 
He also sees their perseverance. By the time of this letter, the Christian churches in the Roman Empire had begun to feel the sting of persecution because of their faith. Nevertheless, this church clings to their faith even as their businesses go under, even as their kids get ostracized, even as, quite frankly, their hopes for deliverance are proving vain, they still believe. Jesus commends them for staying true to their faith when their faith costs them dearly. Now, that's saying something, isn't it? A lot of us get disinterested in God when he just doesn't do what we want him to. When years go by, we're still single, still childless, still stuck in that terrible job. A lot of us get disinterested. Some of us disengage. Well, not this church. Jesus, Jesus has more praise for them. In the next part of the verse, verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. This doesn't mean they've been mean to people who are struggling with sin. This means they tested and turned away preachers and prophets who tried to steer them away from the truth. Being a port city, Ephesus was a prime candidate for peddlers and charlatans with selfish ambition. But when a new teacher comes to Ephesus claiming allegiance with Jesus, they don't buy it right away. They test everything they hear. They search the scriptures. They observe the teacher's character. Then they make sound judgment. A generation earlier, Paul warned this church and its leaders about the dangers of believing false teaching. Well, it seems Paul's warnings were heeded. A generation later, Jesus commends them. Verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now imagine this letter being read aloud in church. Imagine hearing the words of Jesus read from a scroll about you. He praises your commitment. He praises your confession. The Lord extols the leaders for leading well. But, can you hear the but coming? Because there's a but coming. That but often comes, even to people who have been journeying with Jesus for a long, long time time. We think we've got our junk together. We think we're getting it right. And then God comes out of nowhere and opens our eyes to the obvious. Verse four, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Some of us know the older translation. You've forsaken your first love. This is getting interesting, isn't it? But now we're left with an interpretational question. Who is the object of that love? Is Jesus talking about love of God or love of others? The verse doesn't say. And scholars aren't in agreement. I could see practically how either could be true. Have you ever seen a doctrine-loving, sin-hating church embrace religion to the neglect of their relationship with Jesus? Can't you just see a crusty old church love religion more than they love him? Sure, happens all the time. That may be the case in Ephesus. Some commentators think so. Some commentators suggest it could be both love of God and love of others, as if Jesus were being intentionally vague so that it could be applied in both directions. But even among those who suggest both, most commentators think the verse emphasizes loving others. And the message he sends to the Ephesian church and the message he sends to Capital Church is a life without love is just noise. A life without love is just noise. In his brilliant commentary on the book of Revelation, Robert Mounts writes, Every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. It seems probable 
that desire for sound teaching and the resulting forthright action taken to exclude all impostors had created a climate of suspicion in which love within the believing community could no longer exist. Writing about the church at Ephesus, William Barclay suggests, it may be that a hard, censorious, critical, fault-finding, stern self-righteousness had banished the spirit of love. Strict orthodoxy can cost too much if it has to be bought at the price of love. Think about it. You ever seen a Christian or a community of Christians become more concerned about being right over being loving? You ever seen a church become obsessed with dotting their doctrinal I's and crossing their theological T's with the result that they crush honest questions with arrogant answers? You ever seen a church get so particular about rules and regulations, dress codes, social expectations, that they ostracize the people who desperately need to find God's love? Of course you have. And some of you survived. Hey, some of you have been chewed up and spit out so badly by religion, you're shocked you ever decided to darken the door of a church again. I'm so glad you did. And I'm so sorry that religious leaders like me have given you the wrong idea about who God is. And not all of us have been chewed up by church. I wasn't. I might have been nipped now and then. But I grew up in a community where Christ's people often got it right, and for that I give thanks. But some of you need to know, while your awful experience with religion may be common, it's not Christ's plan. Look again at verse 4. He says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first in an attempt to protect the gospel. They overlooked the heart of the gospel, which is love. Think of all the Ephesians' hard work. Consider their obsession with beliefs and behavior. Jesus says, as great as it is, it's adventures in missing the point. How could they miss it? How could a talented, committed group of Christ followers veer so far in the wrong direction? I suspect there are two reasons. The first one's pride. After a while, we can become addicted to being right. We can become consumed with winning doctrinal debates. We got to prove the scientists wrong. We got to prove the politicians wrong. But in our, our arrogant arguing, we miss the father's agenda. Like the kid who brags, my dad can beat up your dad. What good does that kind of rhetoric do if your dad doesn't want to beat up their dad? What if your dad just wants everybody to know he loves them? There's another reason we become belief and behavior hawks. Fear. We're afraid. We're afraid of the effect they will have on our church. We're afraid of the effect they will have on our kids. Whatever the cause, the church at Ephesus had journeyed with Jesus but somehow lost their love along the way. Verse 5, Jesus says, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Ironically, Jesus has to tell this church obsessed with rightness to repent, not to repent for their commitment to right doctrine. He tells them to repent for their lack of love because a life without love is just noise. 
It's no surprise to you the Bible has a lot to say about love. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul describes the behavior of love itself. When love rules the heart of a person, when love defines the character, we will observe a certain kind of life from that individual. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This sounds wonderful. Someone should read these verses at a wedding. (laughs) If only we loved like that after the honeymoon. If only we loved like that at our dinner tables. If only we loved like that in our difficult conversations with difficult people. Here's a problem with loveless religion. We often obsess over right thinking and right living to a fault. Let's start with right thinking. Here I'm talking about doctrine. And hey, doctrine matters. Some of us feel particularly called to be defenders of the faith. Perhaps you've poured over the creeds and the systematic theologies in order to understand and articulate proper orthodoxy. I love it. But the problem comes when we're more concerned about being right than showing love. The problem comes when we're more passionate about proving our point or pointing out how wrong they are. The irony is our efforts to defend the faith often do more damage. In our debates, we're Boastful, proud, rude, self-seeking, easily angered, which are not characteristics of love. Hear me, friends. Doctrine matters. Did you hear me say doctrine doesn't matter? If so, you're mishearing me. Doctrine matters. A lot. It's just people matter more. So let me ask. Are you more concerned about being right or showing love? Or consider our passion for right living. Now, just like right thinking, right living is a good thing. From cover to cover, the Bible calls God's people to holiness and wisdom. Of course, of course, of course, we will continue to talk about holiness throughout the study of the seven churches. But are we guilty of clinging to our religion with one hand while pointing a judgmental finger with the other? Do you pick people apart because the way they dress Or the way they parent. Look, you may be right. Maybe they have something to learn. But the way you talk about what's right may be wrong. You can make them feel so demeaned and degraded that your truth does more harm than help. All in the name of religion. What if we, like the church at Ephesus, have unknowingly become deaf to our loveless words and ways And worship. Did any of you notice a gong behind me? (laughs) This is a 32-inch Wuhan Tam Tam. It is a symphonic gong, commonly used in orchestras around the world. You want to hear how it sounds? Before you hit a gong, you have to warm it up, okay? You got to get it vibrating a little bit. You hear that? 
Okay, ready? What do you think? Hit it again. Maybe a little louder. You don't often hear a gong like this used in live music, do you? But I did on Friday night. See, this weekend, Deer Valley Resort hosted the Utah Symphony for a concert called Rock On! Featuring hits from the 70s and the 80s. So picture, you've got a rhythm section at the front and this massive symphony behind them. Multiple times through the night, a percussionist at the back of the stage struck the gong at appropriate moments. He didn't hit it during every song. It didn't work with Madonna. It didn't fit with Motown. But when they played Aerosmith, dream on, dream on. When they played Queen, Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia. See, at the right moment, And the right measure, nothing makes a musical exclamation point quite like a gong. But outside of a symphony, you've only rarely heard a gong played by a professional musician in a live concert. Can anyone guess why? A gong drowns out everything else. In most musical contexts, hey, in most moments of most symphonies, a gong would detract from the beauty of the music. A gong is just noise. A little earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul warns his reader, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Friends, it is possible that you could do all kinds of things that look really, really spiritual at first glance. People may marvel at your words. They may marvel at your worship. Fellow followers of Jesus may be wowed by your profound prayers. But at the end of the day, as spiritual as it may seem, it's just a lot of noise without love. Look at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. His arguments get more interesting here. Maybe you have keen insight into Christ and his kingdom. Maybe God has spoken through you and into the lives of others for years. Maybe you have a faith that is so potent it can move Mount Olympus from the east side of the valley to the west side of the valley. That's incredible. But if you fail to show love to the people voting for the other candidate... Verse 3 comes as a bit of a shock. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. Look at this. Paul says, you can serve those in need. You can give away your hard-earned income. You can give away your life, but not do it from a heart of love. Well, think about it. You can give in order to make yourself look generous. You can give in order to make yourself feel generous. Sometimes we serve people to make them feel guilty. Sometimes we serve people to make a point. Paul says you can give and go and donate and do, but if you're not doing it because you love people, 
Friends, sometimes the most costly acts of religion are worthless. Though we sacrifice time and money and energy, our religious deeds may be loud, but there's just a lot of noise. Speaking of cost, any of you want a gong for your home? Would you like to know the retail cost of a 32-inch Wuhan tam-tam? $1,200. I think you need one for the kids. But if it's not in its proper context, it's, an, it's utter noise. It's an utter waste of money. Think of all the great Christian things we make worthless without love. You can reason with your friends and your family about faith. You could plead with your family to get their lives right with God. But unless you're doing it from a heart of love and compassion, you can give in every offering. You can go on every missions trip. You can volunteer every single weekend right here at Capital Church. But if you are not doing it because you love the people around you, You can pour yourself into parenting. You can feed them and coach them and train them. You can run them back and forth from debate to dance lessons to lacrosse. But if at the end of the day, you're just a gripey, naggy mess of a mom, all your words, all your chores, I can throw myself into these messages. I can devote myself to thinking and praying about the best ways to to communicate God's truth. I can dedicate the majority of my waking hours to service and ministry. But if I am not doing it because I love you, I think you get the point, don't you? (laughs) Understand. Love keeps religion in check. Love pairs passion with compassion and puts religion in its proper place. Are you practicing your faith with a healthy dose of love? Look back at Revelation 2. Jesus says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Different religious traditions teach different things about repentance. So we might do well to talk about what repentance is not. Repentance is not an emotion. It's not just feeling bad about sin. Repentance is not an intellectual understanding of what you've done wrong. It's not just regret. Repentance is not penance, something done to earn forgiveness. Repentance, to keep it simple, is changing the way we've been thinking and acting. It's reorientation and redirection. The Hebrew word for repentance literally means to turn. Repentance is a decision to change, and it's the action that follows. And friends, Jesus takes our love very seriously. That's why he calls us to repent. And read this next line, verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Good night. Well, this may seem like the punishment exceeds the crime, but think about it for a minute. God intends his people to be the light of the world. Without love, there's no light. What's the good of a broken lamp in a dark room? There's no good. Get rid of the lamp and buy a new one. Verse 6. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And more on the Nicolaitans later in this series, but you got to see Jesus circles back to affirm their commitment to truth. See, it's a good commitment. 
One more verse, verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember, the other churches are reading the Ephesians mail also. Whoever needs to listen should listen. Do you need to hear what the Spirit's saying today? Is the Spirit calling you to repent? And hey, if Ephesus is any indicator, it's those of us who have been journeying with Jesus for a long, long time. We're the ones that should pay the closest attention. It's those of us who are widely respected for our faith who should give our hearts and our lives careful examination. The letter concludes, verse 7, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus featured a beautiful garden. The garden contained a renowned tree shrine that symbolized the goddess of Diana. Everyone knew about this tree. It was a symbol on all of their coins. Famous for it, the temple of Artemis. Everyone thinks, oh, that's the tree, that's the tree, that's the tree. The tree also served as an asylum. Uh, if a criminal came near the tree, he wasn't taken into captivity. No punishment for the crime. He's absolved of all wrongdoing. Jesus isn't referring to the tree of Artemis. Oh, but he's using a familiar image to remind them of another tree, a more important tree, the tree on which he hung and died for the sins of humankind because that is the tree that brought true life. Finally, I want to draw your attention to the phrase at the beginning of the sentence, to the one who is victorious. Literally, the phrase reads, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The one who conquers. Um, it's a strong word in Greek. To the one who vanquishes. Now, according to Revelation 2, how does Jesus want his disciples to conquer? How does Jesus want his apprentices to vanquish their enemy? Is it by fighting back? It's by loving back. Because a life without love is just noise. Let's pray. Lord, is a, the only response to reading a letter like this is repentance. And we as your church confess our sin in this area. How often we've got love wrong. Lord, open our eyes to see the selfishness. Open our eyes to see the impatience and the anger the annoyance. And help us see it for what it is. We repent of our selfishness. We repent of self-righteousness that is experienced so unlovingly by so many people. Lord, shape us from within so we're people absolutely embrace right thinking and absolutely embrace right living but all the while embrace right loving 
May, may our church be a safe community for the self-righteous to find your righteousness. May this be a safe place to learn how to love. I pray that's especially true for people who have been journeying with you a long, long time. We might be the ones most easily deceived. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes. And I pray also for my friends who have been hurt, my friends who have been burned by religion. Somehow, sometime in their past, there was a religious community that hurt them in such a way It's hard to find peace. It's hard to enter a church again. God, I pray for my friends, no matter where they are in their spiritual journey, may they realize healing is available. Healing is available. I pray that even now, they sense your love. Today, may they find hope and wholeness after being hurt by religion. May they realize that church people and church leaders like me that we're called to represent you. We don't always get it right. So may they experience your love today and may they experience your love through this church community, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, how about some homework? For homework, I want to take you back to that Verse from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 6. Now, you remember this one. Love is patient. Love is kind. Doesn't envy. Doesn't boast. Right? Here's your assignment. This is a, a great old pastor's trick that we would use, but it totally, totally works. Carve out a little time this week for reflection. And take this verse, and anywhere it says the word love or a pronoun that represents the word love, think of it as a blank and insert your name. Troy is patient. Troy is kind. Um, by the way, if you say this aloud and your spouse or roommate starts laughing, that is a sign you may have some work to do in that particular area. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to approach this from, from a place of reflecting on your life right now. Troy is patient. Well, is that true? And where is that not true? In what context? With what human? Who are the types of people with whom I have very little patience or kindness, etc., etc.? etc. 
and let the Spirit open your eyes. He will. Ask him to, and he will. He'll open your eyes to see some areas that need some work. And then you know what you do? Right in that moment, ask him to help you. Ask him for more patience with that person or that situation or that group or that environment. And here's the thing. Well, it's a pretty long verse. You may only make it to love is patient. You got to stop right there and spend the whole day right there. Well, guess what? If it helps, that's winning. It's really good. It's really good. It's really good. So, so take a little time this week to, to make it prettier than this. We've created this image for you of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, so this is an image you can download on uh, our online bulletin on our social media accounts as well, this graphic. A life without love is just noise. Please stand with me. If you would like to receive prayer for any reason, there will be people waiting here at the front ready to pray for you. Make your way forward. Ask them to do so. My prayer for you today is lifted straight from the Scriptures, First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. Thanks for being here today. Grace and peace.